in legitimately because, you know, we've had a lot of depressing stuff leading up to Micah 4. Um, <laughs> yeah, Micah is a sad book, rightfully so, until pretty much this chapter. All right, so I titled Micah 4 as Judgment Leads to Restoration. That's kind of the overarching theme of this chapter, um, that all of the judgment that we have been talking about, all of the injustices that God's people have committed in in and that God has accused them of in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and the judgment that will come because of that, um, that has been, you know, the, the people have acted harshly toward each other, and God, similarly, the judgment fits the crime. Um, but what this chapter teaches us, one of the important things that this chapter teaches us is that all of that judgment, um, the purpose of it is for God's people to be restored, um, that we should not feel desolated by the judgment we experience, but that it's the purpose of it is to bring us back to God. So I will read through um, Micah 4 all the way through, um, and, and just so we can kind of soak it in, and then we'll kind of go back and explore it in depth, um, pretty much verse by, by, verse by verse. So here we go. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised up above the hills. Peoples shall stream to it and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation Neither shall they learn war any more, but they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. The lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion now and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of daughter Zion, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come the sovereignty of daughter Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pangs have seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go forth from the city and camp in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be profaned, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. 
Arise and thresh, O daughter Zion, for I will make your horn iron and your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. All right. Sorry, I really did take all the good chapters in that. I know. <laughs> Mine are all doing great. You I know. Like, yeah. <laughs> I still chapter four. Um, <laughs> all right. So, um, so I wish we had a chance to read all of chapter three again because chapter four is a mirror flip of chapter three. All of the language of. Um, of not just doom, but of, of injustice that, that happened in chapter three is reflected now in chapter four and corrected. Um, so I'll give some examples. So in verse one, it talks about Zion at the head of the mountains. Um, and remember all of the language about heads leading up to this, especially in chapter three, um, the heads, the, the religious leaders of Jerusalem are, are evil and wicked. And now Zion will be made a head um, but in the most positive way. And in verse 2, it says, God will teach, whereas up to now, like all of the prophets and the priests have failed to teach properly. They have taught wrongly. They have taught um, not God's law. And in verse 3a, we have, um, we have God judging in a just way versus the injustice that we've been reading about throughout all of Micah oh, that God's people have perpetrated. Um, we're reading about peace instead of violence, especially this famous verse, which I'll talk about a little bit more in a few minutes, this um, beating their swords into plowshares, this image of peace. Um, and think about that in contrast to, remember in the last chapter, there was that, there's that image of like almost cannibalism, like the animal slaughter imagery of how God's people are treating the poor and the oppressed. Um, and, uh, and then in verse 4, we have each having their own property and enjoying the fruits of their own labor, whereas earlier part of their judgment has been um, that God has, you know, that Micah has prophesied, that God has declared is that their land will be taken away because they have taken away the lands of others. But now we see an image of, of land being made right. People have enough. They have enough of what they need, and, um, and, and, it, and it's honored. They honor each other's property. Um. And then in verses 7 to 8, um, we have Jerusalem itself restored. So remember in, in, in chapter 3, verse 12, it said, Zion shall be plowed as a plow field. Oh, sorry, I'm on the wrong slide. It said, Zion shall be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. So that was one of the prophecies in, verse, in chapter 3. And now we have this beautiful image of Zion being the remnant and being lifted up. Hill of daughter Zion, um, to you it shall come, the former dominion. So this image of restoration. Um, yeah. Okay. All right, I'm going to go in and fill some gaps in now, too. Um, so verses 1 to 4 are almost an exact duplicate of Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, which is pretty rare in the prophets to have almost an exact duplicate between two prophets. Um, we do know that Isaiah and Micah were contemporaries, like they, they lived and prophesied right around the same time. Since Isaiah was the more prominent prophet, not just because his book is a lot longer, but also because of his relationships with some of the leaders and 
um, his, his name was better known while he was a prophet than Micah's was. Um, it's more likely that, that Micah probably borrowed from Isaiah. Um, we also get some amplification in this where like the many peoples and the far away, and usually that's a sign of, of taking what someone else says and then kind of amplifying the language. Um, so all that to say, Micah and Isaiah have a lot of similarities here, which, which I think indicates the importance of some of these verses. Um, and these verses are a really beautiful like um, image of, of how God wishes things were for God's people. Um, these images of, of peace and of unity and of, of love um, and of, of unity with God, not just with each other, but also with God. Um, and up to this point, we've seen the brokenness of God's people. And God is saying, but this is what I want for you, which is why I think, I don't know, that's my own speculation, but I think it's one of the reasons why, Isaiah, why Micah borrows these words from Isaiah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's all I want to say about that. So anything else you want to say about that before we start going verse by verse? No, I think that's cool. Okay, cool. Any comments on that? We'll explore each verse a little bit more deeply now, but anything about some of those broad strokes? Isn't that deep, but that, the quote from Hamilton. Yeah. That was yeah. the first thing I noticed. What was the quote? From, what, which one are you thinking of? George Washington quotes four. Um, they shall sit under their own vine and fig tree. Oh, interesting. I don't remember that. When he's stepping down from the presidency, he talks to you, that's like, oh, given yeah. the verse 3 kind of adds some meaning to that statement in the, in the musical. Yeah, absolutely. Um, man, maybe we should just listen to the entire <laughs> Hamilton play right now. I feel like that's a really good excuse. <laughs> Have you guys seen Hamilton? It's very good. It's on Disney+, Plus, so highly recommend. It's only like $8 a month or something. It's worth it to get Disney+, Plus for a month just to watch that. Agreed. 100%. It's so, it's very, very good. So, so, so good. Um... Okay, so uh, we'll start going verse by verse a little bit. So um, in verse 1, some of your translations might have in the end days here. This isn't really, the Hebrew here doesn't really have that kind of like eschatological meaning of like the end times. Um, the Hebrew here is more like the word in the Hebrew in this first, in this first line is pretty much just, it, it kind of means like after, just like this vague, not the present, sometime in the future, um, so, so that's kind of what that means. So this is saying, I, I think we can read into this a time that it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily an image of heaven exclusively, is not necessarily how God is, is portraying these particular images, um, that this is somehow, at least in part, a reality for the future, for our, before, you know, at least in our context, Jesus comes again kind of thing. Um, in verse 2, Mount Zion, so it says, for out of Zion shall go forth instruction. This is hearkening back to some imagery of Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai, the Israel, God's people, got the instruction of God. Um, and so Mount Zion kind of is, is now becoming the new, Mount Zion, the new Mount Sinai, where these two mountains are paralleled as a way to connect with God, as a way to be in relationship with God. Um, and then, of course, this, this beautiful verse in verse, these beautiful verses in verse 3, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, 
neither shall they learn war anymore. Um, there's almost an exact equivalent in 2.4, like we said. Um, a lot of this is taken from Isaiah, and, I, and, and the, this is almost exactly from Isaiah 2.4. Um, but it's this radical claim to peace written in the middle of a lot of war and violence. Um, so think about how crazy it would be to be in the middle of, of, of violence and war and fear and to have an image like this sounds almost kind of stupid. Like it's, it seems unattainable. Um, but this is, what, this, is, this is what Micah and Isaiah are saying is what God wants for us in the future. Um, and it's an exact reversal also of Joel 3.10. So Joel, we're not sure when the prophet Joel wrote. Um, he, it, it's very unclear in the book of Joel. It's one of the most difficult to um, place books in terms of chronology of when it, when it was written and when Joel prophesied. Um, but Joel, he says in his book, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I am a warrior. And so it's almost an exact opposite of, their, of in Joel, we're going to move from peace to war. But Mike and Isaiah are saying, no, we're going to move from war to peace. Um, yeah. Do you have anything you want to say about those verses? Those verses are, that verse is really important. I want to make sure we... Uh, I... I find it very fascinating that right here in Nashville, there's actually a um, uh, historical monument, like one of the historical marker signs uh, for, I think, like Middle Tennessee Plow Works or something like that. And it was um, a plow-making company in the 1800s that had a big warehouse in the mm -hmm. Nashville area. And during um, the Civil War, they actually turned that into um, a place that would make muskets and and wow and guns for the civil war and so it's just right in the middle of the buckle of the bible belt they're literally going back to the joel version of, yeah of uh, turning an instrument of new life and cultivation of something beautiful into a tool of death so yeah right right here in nashville wow that's really good thanks for yeah. thanks for adding that that's good all right, good. Um, okay. Um, so in verses 6 to 8, we have this continued promise of restoration after exile. Um, there's this imagery of the remnant of God's people that will be restored to their rightful place as God's people um, after judgment is over. That judgment leads to restoration. Um, it's really interesting that... that it's very intentional that the lame, that God uses the people who are least likely to be used, a pretty prominent th theme throughout scripture, um, that God uses the people who are least likely to be used to, um, to fulfill God's purposes. And, and it also reminds us that if it's the lame that are the remnant, there's no way that they could have done it by themselves. There's no power, there's no strength in the remnant themselves. And we don't know if lame here is like a literal or, you know, it's, it's metaphorical in some sense. But either way, the, the attention is on God's strength that restores them, that makes them the remnant. Um, these are also echoes of the other salvation verses. So up to this point, again, in Micah, it's been pretty bleak. We got two other brief verses of restoration in chapter 2, at the very end of chapter 2, verses um, 12 and 13. 
And um, especially in verse 12. So, so, verse, so chapter 2, verse 12 of Micah says, I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the survivors of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. It will resound with people. And again, here we get this flock imagery. We get this remnant imagery um, that, that God is, is reminding them over and over again. Yes, you must be judged for the, for the atrocities you've committed, but that judgment leads to restoration. Um, that's all I have to say about this section. Does anyone else want to make any observations or note anything? I, I do want to maybe add two, yeah, please. two quick things. And yeah, you, of course. And you may be ready to mention this later, but um, there in, earlier in chapter 1, we have this theophany, God coming before the people, and it's in, it's like at Mount Sinai where God is coming and saying, here's some here's rules that I'm giving you, but God is is judging people this time. He's sitting in a seat of judgment saying, here is what you have done. You have hurt my people. God, in other places in the text, when God comes to God's people, um, it's, it's a very um, moving, beautiful, deep relationship, and in this case, it is very judgmental, so it should mm-hmm. kind of stand out as a, a big deal that God would come down to God's people. And so this is another image of a theophany where this time God is coming mm-hmm. again, but to gather up the lame yeah. and to... Um, the afflicted. Yes, and to um, speak a word of peace and hope to God's yeah. people, um, which is why a lot of scholars believe that starting in this chapter... Um, this was would have been written in exile when mm. people really needed to hear this. Mm-hmm. When um, you know, when when Micah is preaching this word of doom um, that we have gotten earlier, he's warning people, please don't, please don't continue down this path. These are the bad things that are going to happen. And so, a lot of scholars suggest he wouldn't have put such lovely language about hope <laughs> right on the heels of a message of doom because that lets people off the hook, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can. You can be as bad as you want because God's going to fix it all later. He really wants people to change in the moment. And so a lot of scholars think that this was added by um, another prophet or another um, religious leader while the people were in exile in order to kind of add on to this language. Even though this bad thing has has happened, God is still going to be faithful in this moment yeah. with, with this remnant of, of broken, enslaved, exiled people. Yeah, that's really important. You said there were two things. Was that? Did you say both of them? Yes. Okay. Good. Um, yeah, I think that's a. That's a really good question. Do you want to tackle that, or do you want me to? Go ahead. Um, so, whenever um, I mean the remnant language is very is very literal in the sense that not everyone came back from exile. Um, some people died. Some people stayed behind. Like every time Israel went into exile and came back, there were people who, who dispersed. Um, I mean, even, and, and Mike is speaking, this is before the Babylonian exile where we kind of lost the 10 tribes of Israel. Um, but I mean, with, with Babylon, like the 10 tribes of Israel besides Judah and Benjamin, right? Yeah. Judah and Benjamin made up Judah, but the 10 tribes of Israel, like, they went missing. Like, they just, like, dispersed. They integrated. They assimilated. Um, they never came back. And so, so Mike, Micah is before this, um, so I don't want us to get confused about that. 
Um, but that's part of it with the remnant is like not not everyone comes back. Um, so there's a there's a literal sense to it. There's also a sense of, and I don't want to say symbolic because it's still, but but there's a a trail throughout the Old Testament, especially where um, you know like there was. I mean, Abraham, in some sense, was almost a remnant. He was a, a, a small person who remained faithful to God, um, and God chose and worked through him and made him a huge nation. Noah, actually, before him, would be an, an example also. Um, and, and then kind of throughout the rest of Israel's story, even as they moved away from God, there was always a remnant that remained faithful. Um, so even in all this judgment where God is, is saying, you of God's people, you have you have abandoned me. You have turned away from my law. There was always a small group or a handful of individuals or something that remained faithful to the Lord. Um, and I interpret kind of the remnant language of God saying, like, even among these small people, I see them. Um, and no matter how small, weak, powerless they appear, um, God's strength stays with them, and therefore they can conquer and be victorious. Would you like to add anything? Yeah, I, I think that there's a, a temptation among some church groups of kind of overemphasizing this remnant and kind of saying, oh, there's only a handful of people who mm -hmm. actually get it. But there is much more language in Micah and in um, the, the rest of the prophets. Uh, like if you look in, in verse 1, people shall stream to it, and many nations shall come and mm -hmm. say, come, let's go to yeah. the mountain of the Lord. And so, yes, there's this imagery of a handful of people who have remained faithful and who um, God is kind of gathering up, but that is for the purposes of multitudes streaming back towards God. Yes. So um, when, if ever we're tempted to think there's only a handful of people doing the right thing, um, this is a reminder to us. Kind of like Elijah, you know, in the in the wilderness, you know, I'm the only one that's doing it right, and God's like, no, 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 no. actually, you're not. Yeah, <laughs> and that's that's always the point of God's chosenness. God's chosenness, whether it's with Abraham or with Israel or with the church or with the remnant, um, God's chosenness is always meant to be pointing outward. Yes. And even in the in in this in these first few verses, sorry. Um, we get we get this language of many peoples, of strong nations, of of even now looking outward to um, this remnant will be strong. God will fortify it for it to grow and it to be a blessing to all nations. Right. Um, that's the goal in the first place that they had fallen away from, which right. is why exile was happening. Yes, exactly. The for exile, so. Is that enough? Anything else in these first eight verses or so? Restoration. I love uh, verse five at the end. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Yeah. Yeah. I love that too. Yeah. And this first half of verse five is kind of interesting because it's kind of unclear in the structure if all these pe if if this but is like a um, we are going to be walking in contradiction to these people who walk in the names of their gods because leading up to it the whole point is like there's peace now people are listening to the instruction that from God that comes out of Zion and yet there's still almost this polytheism that's kind of going on at the same time um, 
but ultimately it's this commitment to God that will that will flourish and and be strong. Yeah. Good. All right. So um so in these last few verses again we have this really strong theme of 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 yes so so again we kind of get this reminder of yes restoration happens but it's because of judgment like judgment leads to again restoration um, so in verse nine we have we have these questions why do you cry aloud is there no king in you has your counselor perished um, so much that things you see that so much that the pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Um, and this first verse is the beginning of a series of three oracles. Um, so verses 9 and 10 are one, verses 11 to 13 are another, and our third one comes in chapter 5. Um, and yeah, and so each of these oracles is kind of this Almost, not individual, like they they fit together, but these are words of the uh, from God. Like Micah is setting these aside as as prophecies from the Lord, which all of it is. But as we know, Micah kind of switches back and forth with some of his language in terms of who the I is um, when people are speaking. Sometimes it's Micah, sometimes it's God. Um, so in verse, sorry, okay. So in verse ten, we. Um, we, oh, okay, we have this really interesting verse, you shall go to Babylon. Um, now, again, at this point, Babylon is not the exile we're talking about. The main threat in Micah's time was Assyria. Um, and the impending exile was the Assyrian exile, not the Babylonian exile. Um, so, at, so, so it could be that this is a prophecy looking toward the future exile to Babylon and being rescued from it, what is more likely, given the historical context of, um, of when Micah prophesied, uh, that this is actually, Babylon at this time was actually a friend of Israel, which means that this would have actually been a place of refuge, um, that they will go to Babylon as a place of refuge, and there in Babylon, not from Babylon, but in Babylon, they will be rescued. Um, which is interesting, especially as we think about uh, as things change and who our friends are and what strengths we depend on, um, it is important to, to remember that only God is the ultimate strength because at this point, God is using Babylon to help God's people, but later God will have to rescue God's people from Babylon, from the exact same place. Um, is there anything more you want to say about that? Okay. In verse 11, we have some clear indications that while the nations think that things are going one way, so again, the nations would include probably predominantly Assyria, it may have included others, but the predominant threat here is Assyria. Um, the nations think that they have Israel, that they're in control of everything. Um, but then in verse 12, we get this clarification of, no, they don't, they don't really know what God has planned. Um, and in reality, it's not the nations that have God's people captured, it's God that has the nations. God, because all things, God is sovereign over all. All things, all peoples, all places. Uh, verse 12, one, one scholar I was reading in preparation kind of summarized this verse as, as like the mystery of God's plan. 
um, that outward appearances can be, can be deceiving, that the nations don't realize how God is using them. The nations think they're being, they, that again, like they are a sovereign, they are making their own plans, but God is really using them for God's own plans, God's own purposes. Um, yeah. There's also a, a theme here that we can draw out of a lot of Micah 2 of misperceptions of how God is at work. Um, failure, like in this, it, failure isn't always judgment. Blessing isn't always success. Uh, in this case, I mean, judgment is leading to restoration. So judgment isn't ultimately a failure because judgment leads to restoration, leads to proper relationship with God. And that's a good thing. That's ultimately a success, even if it doesn't feel like such in the moment. And same with the nations here. Like the nations feel like they are in the seat of power, just like earlier throughout the chapters of Micah, it was the leaders and the powerful and the wealthy who felt like they were in the seat of power, when really that's not the, the, the place of blessing to be, because God, throughout Micah and throughout much of the rest of Scripture, makes it very clear that God is on the side of the poor, the oppressed, the afflicted, the marginalized, um, the, that group of people that, is, that appears to be not blessed, they are actually blessed because God is with them. And of course, then we get the Beatitudes later of blessed are the mourn and blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are the meek, where Jesus affirms that truth of sometimes the standards by which we measure whether God is on our side aren't very accurate. Um, and then in verse 13, uh, this is kind of interesting language that arises. So, so the threshing for language at the end of verse 12 is, a, is judgment language. It's a frequent image in scripture of, of judgment. Um, and then God invites, uh, invites Zion, invites the remnant to arise and, flesh, uh, and thresh, arise and thresh, which is interesting considering that in the last verses we, that we know that the remnant is lame, that the, again, the remnant is weak. And so, of course, they're arising and threshing in the power and in the strength of the Lord. Um, and similarly, this horn of iron is also an image of strength in Scripture. Though there's some life brought to it through these, this hoofs image that's kind of partnered with it. So we get a very vivid image of, um, of Zion essentially turning into oxen and, and stomping their enemies. Um, so anyway, that's just, I think, a really interesting image that is here. Yeah. But the purpose, purpose of threshing is not to destroy. Yes. The purpose of threshing is to refine, to get the good out of something. Out of the useless That's part right. of it, so, yes. Yeah, so we're, we're not reverting back from the turn your swords into plowshares. This is, this is more life-giving imagery than it may seem, yes. I think, upon first glance. Absolutely. No, that's a really important observation. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, I'll come back to um. Yeah, that, okay, I said everything. I will close with one other thing. Um, there's one scholar who looks at some of the imagery of Zion throughout this chapter. So Zion is, um, Zion shall go forth with instruction. Uh, the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion. The peoples will go to Mount Zion. Um, the daughters of Zion being the ones who thresh. Let our eyes gaze upon Zion. 
um, Zion being like a woman in labor. There's one scholar that, that emphasizes like in the new covenant, looking forward, Jesus is Zion. So it's Jesus who proclaims God's word and also is the one um, who gathers up the nations and the one who sends, or sorry, gathers up the remnant and the one who sends the remnant out to gather up the peoples as a whole. That, um, that, that's some of this imagery, but that's looking forward. Micah wouldn't have thought of Zion in that way. Um, but as we're kind of looking back theologically of the significance of this, that we can remember that Jesus is, be, becomes the new Zion. Um, yeah. I'm trying to remember. I know there is one prophet that talks about how Zion kind of grows and stretches to expand and mm. become the whole earth. It almost is like garden imagery. And I'm trying to remember if it's Isaiah or not, I don't which know. Micah is kind of referencing back to. Maybe. That would be really and interesting. So, yeah. I need to look. Remind me to look that up for next yeah, week. Yeah, that's that, really interesting. I like that, that a lot. people, if they had heard this message from Isaiah and are kind of hearing it, Micah talk about mm-hmm. some other things, would in their mind think, oh, Zion, this new expanded. Zion. Yeah. I love that. I kind of hope it's an Isaiah. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> Just for the sweet parallelism. Um, <laughs> Um, oh, I will. I will say one more thing. I forgot to mention this. In verse ten, this this imagery of women of a woman giving birth um, is really common language, as a symbol of going through pain in order for new life to happen, um, which is a good kind of comparison to this judgment, this harsh, difficult, challenging, harsh but just um, judgment that that Israel, that God's people, are going through, and Micah is promising but it will lead to restoration. It will lead to new life. So birth imagery is um, a really important image of judgment. Of course, that doesn't mean we can then reverse that, like reverse, reflect back on that image and say giving birth is judgment. Um, that's not what that is supposed to mean. Um, even God is used as, as in, there's a lot of imagery of God giving birth. Mm-hmm. Um, and even that is, is used of, of pain can bring new life. Um, so I, I, I think that imagery is important. All right. Any comments about this section specifically, verses 9 through 13? This is the last section. I was reading one, I was reading one commentary that had a verse 14. Yes. Which is interesting. Yes. And I just left it off because I didn't understand it. Yes. I had nothing to say about it. I think it's, I think it's in the Hebrew scriptures. Okay. Um, verse 1. Uh, is it I'm verse tra- 1 of chapter 5? Verse 1 of chapter 5. Becomes verse 14 of chapter. Right. Uh-huh. Interesting. Okay. Yes, they think that that ends that oracle. Interesting. In the next one, which changes the meaning. So we can talk about that some next week. Yeah, that'd be interesting to talk about. Mine, mine down here on the next lesson. Yeah. Their ill-gotten gain. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't... This just says to both their gain. Yeah. Seems yeah. like to me, this right here, the one that's in mine, doesn't what? seem, NIV, doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be right. That seems mm-hmm. like this should be better. The, yeah, I don't... Gain, ill-gotten means you're stealing it or something. I'll, uh, I'll, ask, I'll ask Philip Camp. Yeah, that would be on, really interesting uh, of how... Tuesday. Because there might there might be something about the word the Hebrew word for gain that implies something like that, but that it's unclear. Um, either way, the point of that is a really good observation. Either way, the point of these verses is that 
the, the, the remnant and the threshing is happening. Uh, the, the remnant has strength to be victorious, and the threshing, the threshing is happening out of the strength of God. And so because God is the one who facilitates it, any spoils or gains or whatever, they rightfully belong to God. Well, it could be, though, that it could be like charging an excessive interest rate mm. rather than a reasonable. That could be considered ill gain. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and it's legal, but it's, right. it, you know, it's just out of... Yeah, and we saw that a lot. I mean, in verses, in, I mean, in chapters 1 through 3, we read a lot about the ill-gotten gains that God's people were accruing against God's people, that the rich and the wealthy and the powerful were, um, were gaining legally, perhaps, but unethically and immorally, according to God, unjustly um, against the poor and oppressed and the, the, un, the, the people without power. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good observation. I'd be curious to hear what, what Philip Camp says about that. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's good. All right, so kind of thinking about this chapter as a whole, what what stood out to you? Hmm. Yeah. What about the hope? After, after judgment comes restoration. Mhm. Mhm. Micah is so expressive and so lyrical, uh, and and that's true both in the judgment and the hope. And yeah. I think, I think sometimes poetry or kind of the metaphor that he employs um, can can go a lot deeper than words and explanations. Totally. So I love the poetry of it all. Yeah, it's beautiful. I think it reminds us to be more considerate. Mm. Of, uh, uh, someone less fortunate. And, uh, and that means something to me because I, when I do work on certain properties and a lot of old people on that, so I tell them, hey, if you've got a you got a rent payment due or a utility payment or a drug you need, you don't have to pay me. Mm-hmm. You just go get your drugs. Mm-hmm. It's more important for me for you to have those than it is for me to receive them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. I, I gathered as much. <laughs> Daily, but uh, <laughs> I just think that's more important to me. Yeah. Because if my labor doesn't mean that much. Yeah. It means a little bit at the end of the month, but no, if it's, I can't see taking something from someone mm-hmm. that, that needs uh, necessities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Certainly, yeah. I think another thing that's important for us to keep in mind, not just as we read this chapter, but as we read um, further on, mm-hmm. um, maybe to your question, what can God's people learn today from Micah 4? In this time, God's people were a bounded community uh, that had land, and now um, because of the Spirit and because of Christ, um, we, when we read this, the we is not America, the we is Christian. Um, and so just I would I would caution us to be very careful 
reading this through the eyes of what might this be saying about America today instead of what might this say, be saying about how Christians who claim to follow a crucified Christ yeah. should read this. Yeah, that's great. It's one of the reasons why when we talk about this, and I try to, I, I do say Israel sometimes because it's important, but I try to substitute whenever it's appropriate to say God's people instead, um, which is an intentional choice as we're talking about the Old Testament really in general because Israel's parallel, we, we think of the Israel that exists today, which is a contemporary modern nation that has very few, very few ties to its historical roots. Um, certainly theologically it has virtually no ties. Um, but, but we are God's people. The church is God's people, which I think is really important to remember that as we're talking about God's people, we shouldn't be thinking nation, though Israel at this time was whatever nation meant in the ancient world in, the same, in a similar way. Um, we're, we, God's people now, like Becky said, are not a nation. We are the church that transcends borders, um, that transcends ethnic ties, that transcends familial ties, all of that. Um, our, yeah. Like there's that emphasis on the universal, but there's also sit under my own mind. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, is there something there about investing in a particular place, loving where you're from, mm-hmm. but also there's a universal aspect? Yeah, there's a certain rootedness to that language in, um, in verse, what verse was that, in verse 4. Um, that that's what peace looks like. Being rooted in a place. But also the important part, especially in context of what we read in verses one, in chapters 1 through 3, is that they're not taking more than what they need. They're not taking so much that other people don't have fig trees, that other people don't have their own vines, that we are rooted in a place, we're rooted in community, um, and everyone else has the opportunity to have the same thing, mm-hmm. that they're also rooted in a place, rooted in but community. But it does show that they have worked and, and, and purchased something for their very own use. And uh, I think that's good because everyone should do that. They should work and produce and uh, have ownership. When you have ownership in a society, you just feel more of a part mm-hmm. of it. And uh, you're providing for yourself also. And you're probably providing for, for others too, but you're definitely providing for your own needs mm-hmm. rather than asking for handouts and that kind of thing. It's what that kind of looks like to me. I think um, for me when I read this, I am reminded that God is taking away the land that belonged to people who were saying, this is mine, instead of remembering that it was God's and that it belonged to to um, the community and the way the community interacts with one another. And so, yes, I think that stewardship and caring for what God has blessed you with is uh, is of the utmost importance. And I think you talking about how you, in your work, care for the people that you, um, I mean, you, you treat your business like a ministry. And I think that's what this verse mm-hmm. is, is kind of getting at. Um, and I think this verse is very clear in reminding us, it, not this verse in particular, but all of Micah is, is clear in reminding us that um, our land does not belong to us. It all belongs to God. Mm-hmm. Even the fig trees and the vines, they can't grow without the strength of the Lord. That's right. Yeah. Even though we have, we are invited to participate in that by cultivating and by, by nurturing and by tending and all that. So we're not passive. We're not, right. like you said, we, we participate in the work and the life of God. But 
ultimately we can't make the sunshine or the right. or the rainfall. This this lame remnant mm-hmm. of people <laughs> didn't didn't do can't a make lot to happen. deserve what God had blessed them with. Yeah. So, yeah. It's like their diets are a little boring though. Yeah. Yeah. They never talk about squash or <laughs> Yeah, okra. I like okra. So <laughs> funny. No, but I don't think there's any okra in this world. <laughs> Certainly not fried, which is a shame. <laughs> when I was over there, all I saw was pecan trees. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, yeah, I lived there for a couple months. It's a robust, very diverse um, diet, but it's, yeah. The milk and honey um, is actually a reference, the land flowing with milk and honey is actually a reference to figs and dates, the milk of figs and the honey of dates. Um, and it really is, they're super important to our, to, to the diet there. It's, I mean, you pretty much eat them every day. So, um, all right. Well, we're, we're out of time. I would love to continue discussing, but our time runs out so fast every week. Um, any any final thoughts or questions or statements or reflections? Thank you. It's yeah, thank you. I did forget to mention locusts that's on their diet. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> They're a great source of protein. <laughs> it seems like. <laughs> crunchy. Not so much anymore, but they were then. <laughs> well, yeah, that's uh, great. Fish, uh, like Peter's fish. Yeah. You know, in, in Galilee, they... They bring out Peter's fish. Yes. Thing. And the thing's looking at you. It, you know? it does. It does have a face. I, I, I had to cover up the head. <laughs> <laughs> but it was very good, though. Yeah. When Nate and I lived in Uganda, that's a, also a common practice in Uganda is just to eat the whole fish. Really? They like to slurp out the eyes. I, don't know I never worked up the courage quite to do that, but I did get used to looking at the face. That doesn't bother me anymore. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, take, it took a while, but I, I got used to it. A dessert we had in Brazil once was, I thought they were M&M's. <laughs> they were not M&M's. Because <laughs> they, 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 were, they, they were eyes of fish. Oh. And, and I thought it was M&M's. Nope. I stuffed it in and I said, good night. <laughs> said, that's a fish eye. They put it on every little square in the, in the tree. Oh, my goodness. In Brazil. So funny. Well, join us again next week for a little more doom and gloom. I will, of course, be teaching. So. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Don't well, I don't know if you've noticed, but I this is all I wear. Oh, oh it's your arm. You, yeah. No, I I own I have four black dresses and that's all I ever wear. So, <laughs> so I don't I don't even have a flower option. Are you channeling? Are you Randy, thank you guys. Thank so you nice so much you. for being here. It's great to meet you. I am not. <laughs>